Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Courtney, every time a new president and his family take up residence at the White House, we're witnessing history because it's a building recognized worldwide as one of the images of American democracy and power. But like so many things in America, it also has a history of systemic racism. That's right, Aunt Carol. In our episode titled Presidents Behaving Badly, we pointed out some of the less than admirable and racist actions of America's commanders and chiefs. We did indeed. But there are lots of interesting history and stories about the White House. In fact, it's Clarence Lausanne's book, The Black History of the White House, that provided some of the fodder for today's episode. So let's turn our attention to some of the people who helped build, lived or worked and entertained at the White House to see how systemic racism played into some of the more mundane and illustrious aspects of that fabled uh, residence. Well, Aunt Carol, let me share some trivia with you. Did you know that it wasn't until 1901 when President Theodore Roosevelt officially named the executive mansion the White House? It had several other names like the President's House and the Executive Mansion. But since every state had an executive mansion, President Roosevelt believed that the name the White House would distinguish it as an official residence for the President of the United States. Well, that's good information to know. Also, it's good information to know that the White House was finished at 1 p.m. on November 1st, 1800, when John Adams, the second president of the United States, moved in as its first official resident. And after his first night there, Adams gave a benediction and blessing to his new home. And this is what he said. I pray heaven bestow the best of blessings on this house and on all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. I have always admired the words of John Adams, and that is a beautiful blessing and benediction. But sadly, those words have not always been true. Well, Courtney, as it relates to honesty, that's an understatement, my dear niece. As of August 27th, the Washington Post database of dishonest claims by former President Donald Trump stood at 22,247 claims in 1,316 days. That averaged about 50 lies a day. Um, The culmination of which was his insistence he had won the November presidential election by a landslide, though the Electoral College and overwhelming popular vote said otherwise. So Adam's prayer that the White House be inhabited by none but honest men 
wasn't answered in that last administration. But I digress. I digress. Although our focus is on the building of and activities in the White House, it's important to note every major building in every major city constructed in the pre-19th century era used slave labor in some capacity. Buildings like Independence Hall, Faneuil Hall, the U.S. Capitol. So, you know, the White House is no exception. Although George Washington and Thomas Jefferson preferred to bring German and Scottish immigrant laborers to do the work, they had very little success attracting foreign labor. So beginning on February 11, 1795 through May 17, 1801, payroll records show payments were paid for, quote, Negro hire, which was a euphemism for slave labor. Okay, and Carol, hold up. I thought slaves couldn't get paid. I'm kind of confused. Well, of course, my dear niece, it is confusing. The whole idea of enslaving another person to do your work is confusing. But here's how this all went. At the end of the 18th century, there was a surplus of slave labor, labor in the Maryland, Virginia area. The opportunity to hire out slaves solved the cash flow problem that Southern planters were experiencing. Slaveholders leased out their enslaved people and the money earned by them went straight to the white owners. None was shared with the enslaved people. I should have figured as much, but what kind of work did these enslaved laborers do? Well, as you can imagine, it was back-breaking work. They cut stone from nearby quarries. They cut and sawed trees to create streets. They made and laid bricks. They hauled material as well as uh, they did roofing, plastering, painting, and carpentry. And the work wasn't limited to men. There's evidence that women worked off-site making bricks that were then shipped to the construction site. Most of these men and women remain nameless except for cryptic notations on payroll records, names like Negro, Peter, Tom, Ben, Harry, and Daniel. Uh, these were names that were noted down as the enslaved men who worked as carpenters. So these people were a part of history, but have been reduced down to just jotted now notes and names? That's right. That's very right. And those notes were to ensure that the people who owned the enslaved got paid. Now, once the White House was built, presidents brought their families. And in the case of five of those presidents, they also brought their slaves to live there. These included Monroe, Jackson, Tyler, Polk and Taylor. Now, I bet they had some amazing stories about living in the White House, despite being considered property. But did any of the enslaved men and women get a chance to actually tell their stories? Well, some did. Now, one of my favorite stories about an enslaved man at the White House was about Paul Jennings. He published a 19-page book titled A Colored Man's Reminiscence of James Madison. Now, I guess you could say it was the first tell-all books about life in the White House and its inhabitants. That was before people had to sign these non-disclosure agreements. Now, Jennings dispels one of the long-held myths about Dolly Madison. You may recall the story goes that during the War of 1812, when the British marched toward the White House intent on burning it down, Dolly Madison before escaping with her life, save the famous Gilbert Stuart painting of George Washington. Well, 
Jennings, in his book, revealed that it was actually the French doorkeeper, John Suset, and the president's gardener, McGraw, not Dolly Madison, who took it down and sent it off on a wagon with some large silver urns and other valuables. Wow, I am taken aback. I have always believed that story about Dolly Madison risking her life and running through the night in her Regency gown, life, limb, and powdered wig in hand, only to save that portrait. But I like this story a little bit better. I agree. I like it, too. The truth is much more interesting than Dolly's fabrication. Now, Courtney, not all the Black African Americans at the White House were enslaved. One very important figure few people know about is Elizabeth Keckley. Keckley was Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker and for many years her dearest confidant. She was a free woman who owned her own successful dressmaking shop. Now like Jennings, Lizzie, as she was known to the Lincolns, also wrote a tell-all book called Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. Keckley's story is intriguing and one we'll have to share one day. But right now, I think you have an interesting story that also involves a dressmaker and a famous White House resident. I do, Ann Carol. That was the perfect segue. Now, I know we've talked about the people who actually got their hands dirty building and working in the White House. But I have a story about a woman who helped create one of the icons who lived in the White House. Now, I'm sure our listeners know who Jacqueline Kennedy or who Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis is, as well as her husband, JFK. Now, one of the things that Jackie is known for is her impeccable sense of style. Now, one of the first glimpses the nation would see of Jackie in her American royal style would be at her wedding, in her wedding dress. Now, what most people don't know is that I, that iconic wedding dress that has influenced wedding gowns to this very day was designed by an African-American couture designer who for decades was simply relegated to the title colored seamstress that's amazing her name was Anne Lowe and she was much more than a seamstress she was often called society's best kept secret now Anne was born in Clayton Alabama designing luxurious ball gowns for high society women and debutantes it's something that was in her blood both her mother and grandmother were seamstresses to wealthy Alabama elites. Now, as a child, Anne would amuse herself by shaping cloth and flowers of the leftover dresses into her own designs. And that was something she told Ebony Magazine in an interview in 1966. Now, when her mother died, Annie was only 16, leaving four ball gowns for the first lady of Alabama unfinished. Well, this teenager got to work and finish that order. At 18, she shocked the administrators at the New York Fashion School when she showed up for class. They hadn't realized they had admitted a black student until she had arrived causing Anne to be segregated from her white peers. But due to her exceptional talents and skills, she graduated early and moved to Florida. Now, once back in the South, she built a reputation for extravagance, exclusivity, and luxury in fashion. After a decade, she returned to Manhattan to do the same on the Upper East Side. 
Anne knew the type of clientele she wanted, and she was quoted as saying, I love my clothes, and I'm very particular about who wears them. I'm not interested in sewing for cafe society or social climbers. I do not sew for Mary and Sue. I sew for families on the social register. Well, she definitely knew who her clientele would be. I like this lady's style. Me too. Now, Anne quickly became the go-to dress designer for high society. The Rockefellers, the Roosevelt's, and the DuPonts were just a few of her extremely wealthy clients. Now, sadly, however, she was often talked into lowering her prices when she could be asking for higher commissions, although she didn't due to her race. Now, in 1953, her luck would change when she received the dress commissions of all dress commissions. Anne had been hired to create the wedding dress for Jacqueline Bouvier's wedding to John F. Kennedy Jr., plus all the gowns for the bridesmaids and the mother of the bride. 800 guests would see Anne's creation, not counting the 3,000 well-wishers and the millions of people around the world who would see the dress in print and pictures. But after the break, I will tell you and our listeners how a burst, a burst pipe, an unhappy bride, and an overbearing father-in-law almost kept Anne's dreams from coming true. Oh, boy, this sounds like we're about to hear one of those wedding day disaster stories. So let's take a break. Then we'll hear what happened. Okay, Courtney, we're back. But before you go on, I want to remind our listeners if they want to learn more about systemic racism and uh, to get more episodes from our podcast or anything that has to do with why they are so why are they so angry, you can check in to our website at podcast.whyaretheysoangry.com for more information. And you can also take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. Okay, now let's hear if the bride's day was ruined or if someone saved the day. Well, Aunt Carol, when we left, Anne had received the commission to make who, at the time, was Jackie Bouvier's wedding gown. And honestly, Anne was the obvious choice. She had worked with the Bouvier family for years, even creating Jackie's debutante gown but Jackie wanted something different she wanted something simple and French but her future father-in-law who had taken over all the planning of his son's wedding wanted something akin to American royalty so the father-in-law took over usually it's the mother-in-law who kind of butts in uh, I remember planning my wedding, and the last thing my father-in-law wanted to do was do anything with my dress, but I guess JFK's dad had a vision. So Anne and her team went to work. Her and her assistant spent two months cutting and sewing the ornate folds of the gown out of 50 yards of silk taffeta. But 10 days before the wedding, disaster struck at a pipe burst in low studio ruining all the dresses including the brides 
Now she and her team gathered their strength and worked day and night to complete the assignment, recreating each masterpiece in a fraction of the time. Rather than making a profit on this dream project, she ended up losing $2,200, which in today's money would be $21,000. Wow. And they managed to finish the project but lose money. But lose a lot of money. Now, after saving the day and the dresses, as well as losing a small fortune, Anne Lowe was met with another issue. And this one was of the racial kind. I knew it was coming. Now, Anne was told that due to the press and guests being on site for the wedding in Rhode Island, she'd have to deliver Jackie's wedding gown through the servant's entrance. And at that point, Anne had just simply had it. She said no. Her response was either me and the gown go through the front door or me and the gown are going back to New York. Hey, I don't blame her. That That's a threat that any bride would uh, figure out she better answer correctly. Correct. Now, everyone from the press to family to guests loved the dress, but there was one person who really was not feeling Anne's design, and that was the bride. Jackie kind of moped around, and when she was asked who designed such a lovely gown, it's rumored to, that she had said, I wanted to go to France, but a colored dressmaker did it. Hmm, that's an insult. An insult, especially if you've seen the dress in pictures, it's gorgeous. Now, Anne was devastated. Um, now, no one knows if that was a direct quote or not, but people did know that Jackie did not like the dress and Anne did not get any credit for the design. She was literally written out of what most fashion designers and historians will call a career making moment. Now, sadly, due to many years of not being recognized for her amazing work, Anne found herself deep in financial debt. By the mid-60s, she was tens of thousand dollars further in debt and in trouble in the IRS. Now, it was around that time that a now widowed Jackie Kennedy learned of all the drama that Anne had endured creating her wedding dress, including her little bratty remarks. Hmm. But as luck would have it, an anonymous friend paid Anne's back taxes, cutting her debts in half. And until the day she died, Lowe always suspected that anonymous friend was Jackie. That would have been kind. But it would have been kinder had she come forward. Uh, come forward and paid all of her debt. Now, Anne died in 1981 without receiving the honor she was truly due. But I'm glad to say that's changing. And I'd like to end with a quote. That dress she made for Jackie Ken Kennedy was widely photographed. And a lot of people saw it. And no doubt it influenced the average American wedding dress and ball gown for years to come. And that was a quote from Elizabeth Way, an assistant curator at the museum at FIT. The fact that the dress came from the, creator, the creativity of a Black woman speaks to how instrumental Black people have been in shaping American culture and fashion. Well, I couldn't agree with Elizabeth Way more strongly. 
Ann Lowe was another unsung hero with ties to the White House. Now, things have changed dramatically, though, in the 68 years since Ann designed that dress. Vice President Harris and former First Lady Michelle Obama both proudly wore and announced that their inauguration outfits were created by Black African-American fashion designers. Now, I hope Ann Lowe's story becomes more widely known because Jackie Kennedy's wedding gown certainly has historic significance and everyone should know who created that masterpiece. Lowe's work was instrumental in shaping American culture, just like many artistic performances by Black African-Americans at the White House have, uh, have impacted American culture going forward. Now, although we know presidents prior to John Kennedy hosted artistic performances at the White House, however, it was Jackie Kennedy who regularly scheduled concerts and entertainment there, putting the spotlight on performers and the arts. So even though she didn't spotlight Miss Lowe, she was able to spotlight some other Black African-Americans. Now, let's take a look at some of these performers, some who are famous, but some who were unheralded. Well, I knew this tradition had to start somewhere. Do we have any idea who the first Black artist was to perform at the White House? Well, we do. The first Black African-American to perform was Thomas Blind Tom Wiggins. Now, the exact date of his performance is unclear, but it's thought to have been sometime between June 9th and June 18th, 1860, while Buchanan was president. Now, Tom, along with his enslaved parents, was owned by a Columbus, Georgia lawyer named James Neal Bethune. Now, Bethune, by the way, was the first newspaper editor in the South to openly advocate for secession from the Union. He sounds like a real winner. But (laughs) tell me more about Tom. He's the type of historical figure that we all should know about. He is. He definitely is. At an early age, Tom showed uncanny talent and was what we would call a musical prodigy on the piano. He had numerous original compositions, and he was one of the best-known American performing pianists and one of the best-known African-American musicians. In fact, it's said that Tom could hear a musical, a very complex musical um, Uh, composition played, and he could play it back note by note. Now, Bethune hired out Blind Tom from the age of eight years old to a concert promoter named Perry Oliver. Now, sadly, Oliver marketed Tom as a Barnum and Bailey style freak, advertising him as a transformation from animal to artist. Now, in the media, Tom was frequently compared to a bear, a baboon, or a mastiff. Now, Oliver toured Tom extensively in the U.S., performing him as often as four times a day and earning Oliver and Bethune up to $100,000 a year, which at that time was an enormous amount of money. But even today, that would be equivalent to $1.5 million in a year. Now, Bethune's family made a fortune from Blind Tom's performances, but as we've already stated, Tom did not make any because he was a slave. Now, Tom's story is one way we may have to delve into more deeply in a future episode, Courtney. Yes, I think so. And you must have been reading my mind when you mentioned P.T. Barnum. He benefited from a lot of African-American talent 
just like Tom. Yes, yes, indeed. P.T. Barnum exploited many people in his sideshows, including Black African-Americans. So we'll definitely have to circle back to that topic. Now, Blind Tom opened the door for artistic performances at the White House. As far back as 1878, Black African-Americans performed opera and classical music at the White House. I was surprised to learn that Frederick Douglass's grandson, Joseph Henry Douglass, had a successful career as a concert violinist, which included a performance at the White House. But unfortunately, despite his talent and because of systemic racism, he was forced to play in segregated venues for all of his public performance career in the United States, with the exception of the White House. That's a shame to think of how many people missed out on such beautiful music because of racism and segregation. Yes, you're right. People miss a lot of things because of racism. Which brings us to another story about an almost missed opportunity. Most people know the story of how Eleanor Roosevelt stepped in and arranged for famed opera singer Marian Anderson to sing at the Lincoln Memorial after the Daughters of the Revolution refused to let her perform at Constitution Hall. But before that concert, a host of Black African-American opera singers performed at the White House, including Marie Salika Williams and Ciceretta Jones. But like Douglas, they were limited to segregated venues when they performed outside of the White House. Mm, another missed opportunity. But what was the most common genre of Black performers who were requested to perform at the White House? Well, by the mid-20th century, inviting Black African-American performers to the White House became the norm. So it was jazz performances that became a centerpiece of musical repertoires for every president, starting with Kennedy, up to the present. Now, the only uh, president who did not have a jazz performance or didn't host a jazz performance was George W. I'm sorry, J George H.W. Bush. Um, he did not have any jazz performances done there, but everybody else from Kennedy up have. Well, he missed out on some great jazz, but I'm sure his son, who is best friends with Michelle Obama, has impeccable musical taste. He does. And he was, unlike his father, did schedule jazz performances. It's important to note that presidents also use the power of jazz outside the White House. In 1956, the U.S. State Department created the Jazz Ambassadors Program, hiring leading American jazz musicians such as Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington, and others to be ambassadors for the United States overseas. Particularly, this was done to improve the image of the United States in light of the criticism from the Soviet Union about racial inequality and tension in this country. The idea was to show foreign audiences integrated musical groups to show that America wasn't as bad as the Soviets would have us be. Now they do call music the universal language and I guess that explains why black or black originated genres of music are so popular in so many places around the world. Indeed it is. Music has always been a way to bring people together regardless of their politics. Now, although the Reagan White House holds the record for most performances hosted, it's the Obamas who live there when we saw the most diversity among performers. Um, African-American performances uh, included folks like Common, 
John Legend, Stevie Wonder, Queen Latifah, and of course, Aretha Franklin, just to name a few. Well, I was alive for both presidencies. And as much as I loved as a little girl seeing Michael Jackson moonwalk at the White House in the 80s, I have much more fond memories of the of the musical events held by the Obamas because they were always welcoming of having hip hop artists. And they had a small group, a diverse group of actors come and do a little musical workshop for a little play you may know called Hamilton. Right. A little play indeed that was a blockbuster or is a blockbuster. The Obamas definitely know how, knew how to spot talent. Now, in spite of systemic racism, the carpenters and bricklayers who built the White House, the servants who made it a home, and the entertainers who brought light and life within its walls, Black African Americans have left their mark on the people's house and on the nation's culture and politics. Well, that brings this episode to a close. But as the saying goes, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. And that includes the White House. Now, if you miss us, go to our new link, which is podcast.whyaretheysoangry.com, where you can check out every episode of the podcast, send us a comment, connect with us on all our social media platforms and get official why are they so angry swag that brings today's episode to a close we hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question why are they so angry as always we hope you learn something so you can see it say it and confront it <laughs>